This week on the Northwest Politicast. Scandal at Everett City Hall. The Everett City Council voted unanimously to investigate their own mayor for a possible inappropriate relationship. And it involves a former state lawmaker who previously resigned over an earlier sex scandal. Plus, we need to have a strategic vision of U.S. policy towards China that isn't influenced by the outrage of the week or the spy balloon of the week. Congressman Rick Larson on the administration's response to China and all of those unidentified objects the military has been shooting down. And the race for 2024 heats up as more and more people say they want to live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. And some damning revelations come to light about Fox News. Now, reporting from Seattle, Jeff Pojola. Well, something of what could be a sex scandal is brewing in the city of Everett. Members of the city council voted unanimously to investigate their own mayor for a possible inappropriate relationship. We get details from Northwest News Radio's Corwin Hake. Emerging from an hour-long executive session, City Council President Brenda Stonecipher made a motion heard by seven grim-faced council members to enter into a contract with Seattle law firm Stokes Lawrence. To conduct an investigation to determine whether the relationship between the mayor and the City of Everett employee violates any laws or policies. Cassie Franklin is the mayor of Everett, first elected in 2017. The Daily Herald reports the city employee is Deputy Mayor Nick Harper. The council action does not specify the nature of the relationship to be investigated. Questioned on the matter, Franklin tells the Herald she will cooperate with the investigation. She declines to comment on a relationship with Harper, saying, quote, my personal life is my personal life. Franklin and Harper are both married to others. Court papers show Franklin filed for divorce in November. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. And Corwin joins us now on the Northwest Newsline. And so we really don't know the nature of this relationship, but all things point to something that would be inappropriate for a mayor and a subordinate. Well, it certainly has the form and details of what we used to think of as a scandal in government. We've got a a 50-ish mayor of Everett, Cassie Franklin, apparently involved in a relationship with an underling, Deputy Mayor Nick Harper, a guy in his 40s. Um, But it's as yet to be determined if that's really the part of the story that might be considered a scandal. Uh, the, it's clear that the city council didn't want to take this action. Cassie Franklin is a, a former council member. Uh, she frequently attends council meetings, apparently on good terms with uh, her fellow and former colleagues. So they didn't want to take this action. They did look stricken as they voted to launch this investigation. The question here is not perhaps not whether the alleged sexual relationship is inappropriate, but whether Mayor Franklin is misusing city resources to conduct this relationship. And perhaps people in Everett are a little bit more sensitive to this issue than others might be. And I can explain it in two words. Aaron Reardon, do you remember him? I do. That goes back a ways. 10 years. He's the former uh, Snohomish County executive, uh, a rising star in the Democratic Party. He might have been governor one day. He had that kind of appeal, kind of an Inslee appeal. Uh, But he was caught in an affair. And more to the point, he was accused of using a county credit card in this affair with, by the way, a county employee to take personal trips with her. And that was really his undoing. He was a married guy, by the way, just as these two people uh, in this new story are married. 
So it was not so much the sex scandal, but it was the misuse of funds that really got Aaron Reardon in the end, although he was cleared of all charges. He was never charged, not enough evidence. So we're waiting to see in this case if Mayor Franklin and uh, Deputy Mayor Harper were involved in any kind of misuse of county resources. That's what this um, law firm has been hired to investigate. Well, certainly the idea of a sex scandal in politics isn't what it used to be, as you know, pretty much anyone in power these days has had some sort of affair of some sort, whether it be... It's a, with, it's a little quaint, isn't it? it indeed, yeah, certainly in, in, in the post-Bill uh, Clinton, Monica Lewinsky era. Uh, but, you know, the other question is there's also the issue of a supervisor and a subordinate because Mayor Franklin hired Deputy Mayor Harper. That's perhaps more to the point. Exactly. In this new era, the hashtag MeToo era, the power imbalance is perhaps more scandalous than the uh, out-of-wedlock affair kind of thing. So that's something that uh, I imagine at least public opinion will have to take a close look at. Uh, This may not go to any sort of legal issues involving their relationship, but certainly it is an imbalance. Uh, Mayor Franklin, 50-something, Deputy Mayor Harper, a young guy in his 40s. Well, and and Harper himself is no stranger to sex scandal. He was once a state lawmaker who resigned in a a sex scandal of his own 10 years ago. That's true. So he has some baggage that he brings along with him into this investigation. The question is not so much about whether Nick Harper will be investigated in this. Uh, He seems, you know, if you're uh, utilizing the kind of power struggle issue as the linchpin of this investigation, uh, he's blameless, right? He's the underling. So we'll just have to see if uh, any of this uh, sticks to Cassie Franklin, who by all accounts, a popular mayor in Everett. So when are we expecting to hear the results of this investigation that has just been launched? City Council President Brenda Stonecipher briefly addressed this at their meeting on Wednesday. Uh, She said this is an open-ended investigation. There's no timetable. And uh, Mayor Franklin has agreed to cooperate with the investigation. Uh, You heard her say in my personal, well, quoted as, my personal life is my personal life. The other thing, Jeff, is that She says she contacted the HR department with the city of Everett last summer, making a general inquiry along the lines of, you know, if I were to become involved with another city employee, would that be a problem from an HR point of view? And she says she was told no. So again, we're back to the issue of, is this a sex scandal or is this a a power scandal or is it uh, possibly, we don't know any of the details yet, possibly a misuse of public resources scandal. All right. We'll certainly keep an eye on it. Corwin Hake, reporter for Northwest News Radio. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, sir. Now, we reached out to Mayor Franklin and Deputy Mayor Harper for comment. They have not responded. Still to come. Congressman Rick Larson, Democrat of Everett, joins us with the latest on congressional action in response to the Chinese spy balloon. When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. President Biden addressed the nation this past week about the Chinese spy balloon and the other three unidentified objects the military recently shot down. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing, nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that there were surveillance vehicles from other any other country. Earlier this week, I sat down with Congressman Rick Larson, Democrat of Everett and ranking member on the Transportation Committee, which oversees aviation, to get his thoughts. What's your initial reaction to all of these objects we're seeing 
whether they're from China, as we've confirmed for the, the first object, or some of these others that have been shot down over North America? Well, we do know that the first one was from China. It was at about 60,000 feet up in the air, which is about 20,000 or 25,000 feet above where most of our airplanes fly. So it wasn't necessarily a threat to airspace, but it was a Chinese spy balloon, and I think the administration wisely shot it down after it passed over the United States to ensure that it didn't fall on people or property. Uh, and I assume as well the administration used that time to gather um, information about the Chinese spy balloon that could be useful to U.S. national security interests. These subsequent objects are, uh, are uh, is not known whether they're commercial objects, research uh, objects, uh, or exactly where they're from. But out of, uh, out of precaution, because they're traveling much closer to airspace that airplanes use, the U.S. is choosing to, to shoot them down. As we go through recovery, we'll find out more about what these objects um, are and, in fact, what they're used for, um, and then we can make adjustments uh, to policy based on that. You're also part of the U.S.-China Working Group, and this can't be good for the already frosty relations between the two countries. The uh, U.S.-China relations before the Chinese spy balloon were um, at probably a, a, a multi-year low, and this didn't Im improve anything. But I'm trying to emphasize to people who ask about this that uh, our, our, our relationship with China should not be based on one Chinese spy balloon. It has to be deeper and more strategic. We need to think about it more, uh, more strategically than that. There are areas of cooperation on, on climate change, on global health, on national security in Northeast Asia, mainly around North Korea. But the U.S. and China have different views of the world. We have, um, uh, uh, we're in a bit of an economic competition, especially when it comes to um, relations with other countries. And I think one thing the U.S. can do is be better about going on offense with our diplomacy, with our trade policy, with some of these countries uh, that are currently seen more as in China's orbit. Not that it need to be in a U.S. orbit, but we need to have aggressive, good, good relations with friends, allies, and partners, and not forget the role that they all play in ensuring that the U.S. remains strong. Speaking of diplomacy, this whole incident canceled Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's pre-planned trip to Beijing. Was that a good move? Uh, I think it's more fair to say the trip was postponed. I can see where uh, Secretary Blinken at some point in the future will be returning, uh, will, will be going uh, to China. I think it's it's in the it, it's just in our in the national security interests of the U.S. and of China that uh, the dip, that di diplomats are speaking to each other um, because we're the two largest countries in the world, we're the two largest uh, um, global emitters of CO2. Um, both countries are in a lot of places in the world. Uh, diplomats need to be talking. So I would, I would argue that, um, that uh, Secretary Blinken's trip is merely postponed. Uh, but it's going to, you know, the, the, a new trip is going to be um, probably a little bit different than the one they had originally planned. What can Congress do? Well, I think ensuring that we're pursuing um, our diplomacy with our friends and allies and partners in this region and, frankly, around the world. Um, I think the U.S. is better positioned um, relative to China's influence in countries. If we're doing our job in, from a U.S. perspective on developing partners, developing friends, developing um, allies. Uh, so I, I think those are the two big th 
steps that, that, you know, we've taken a set of steps already. We need to ensure that the U.S. remains in a position of global leadership, and we do that by developing friends, allies, and partners. Republicans and some Democrats have criticized the president and the administration for not being as tough on China through this whole incident. Would you agree with that? Um, I wouldn't uh, agree with that. I don't know what being tough on China with regards to this incident means. What I would say is that if U.S. policy is going to be um, uh, as buffeted by the wind as spy balloons are, then we're not. Then we don't have a very good policy, and we're going to end up in a worse position uh, in the future. We need to have a strategic vision of U.S. policy towards China that isn't influenced by the outrage of the week or the spy balloon of the week. Um, we need to have one that is longer term. We need to have uh, one that is tough, one that is competitive. Um, and we also recognize, have to recognize where there's areas of cooperation with the, with the second largest economy in the world and the largest global emitter of carbon emissions. Um, if we're just going to set U.S. policy uh, based on uh, whether the president should have shot down a spy balloon over Alaska or over the Carolinas, that is not a place where uh, to start when it comes to setting policy. I'm trying to get members of Congress to be a, a much more strategic in their vision of U.S.-China policy. And we have an opportunity now in Congress. We established in a bipartisan vote a select committee on China um, to look at a lot of these issues. Uh, I think 85 to 95 85 to 90 percent of things uh, uh, will be discussed. Democrats and Republicans will agree on. So, uh, but again, I, I just think that if we're focused strictly on whether the president was tough enough on this one issue, that's not a very strategic view nor a good foundation to build a long-term U.S. policy towards China. On the home front, now you're ranking member on the uh, Transportation Committee. Obviously, that's a big issue with the bipartisan infrastructure plan that was passed in the last couple of years, a lot of money coming to Washington state. What are some of the successes and and some of the things that I guess you you see that may have been left on the table or that you're still working on? I think one of the successes specifically for our state is the development uh, of a culvert program, and in shorthand, a culvert program. Uh, This is uh, about an $800 million program at the federal level. It requires a $200 million match, so it's an 80-20, we call it an 80-20 program, where states, local governments, and tribal governments can apply for money to replace culverts which which run under our roads and our highways. These are fish passage barriers, so you replace these culverts, you open up uh, miles upstream for fish habitat. Uh, These culverts are failing as well, so they they are a transportation hazard. Uh, for the traveling public, uh, and so that's one area I think that's a real, a real should be a real keen focus in our state. With Washington State as well, moving to electrify our ferry fleet, we've got uh, we were able to put dollars in the federal budget to encourage states to to um, adopt low and no emission um, technologies for their ferries. Washington State has the largest ferry system, public ferry system, measured by people moved and vehicles moved. So we stand to take. Uh, take a a great advantage of that particular program. And frankly, all all the traditional things that we do too, repairing roads, bridges, and highways uh, are are all funded in this bill as well. So it's a combination of doing the things that we need to do, maintain, preserve our infrastructure, um, but also think about what we, how we want our transportation system to look like and you know in the next 30 years and invest in that um, invest in that as well i think ultimately in the pacific northwest transportation means jobs and this 
big investment in the bipartisan infrastructure law will mean construction jobs for many years. Uh, I want to be sure that it's jobs and opportunities for as many people as possible. And finally, Republicans obviously now control the U.S. House of Representatives. Changes over who's on various committees, who's chairing various committees. What's the working relationship between the two parties in Congress at the moment? Um, It it depends where you look, I think. Um, With the new speaker and the new Democratic leader, um, you have an opportunity for them to reset at least a a relationship at the leadership level, which is positive. There are some committees that will be a little more exciting, I think, for people to watch, um, like the Oversight Committee or Judiciary Committee. I think the committee I'm on, the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, I've jokingly said I want to be the most boring committee in Congress. And we have the opportunity to do that because we have opportunities to build bipartisan legislation. The, the Republican chair of the committee is a colleague of mine I've served with for 22 years. He came in the same year I did. We served on the same two committees for the last 22 years. And, and we want to work on a bipartisan manner on bills that will um, reauthorize um, how we uh, invest in airport infrastructure, and aviation safety in this country, on how we invest in the future of the U.S. Coast Guard, and how we invest in waterways and the infrastructure to support um, to support our ports. So we have opportunities to work in a bipartisan manner, and I'm confident that we'll take those opportunities. Congressman Larson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Now, we've also invited Washington Republicans Kathy McMorris-Rogers and Dan Newhouse to be on this program, and we hope to hear from them in the coming weeks. Coming up next. More on what the president said about those balloons, plus the latest on the investigation into former President Trump's efforts to subvert the 2020 election. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, President Biden spoke to the nation this week about those objects that the military has been shooting down. He said the last three do not appear to be connected in any way to that Chinese spy balloon that crisscrossed the continental U.S., but he is keeping an eye on things. Joining us now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And what exactly did the president say? Well, you know, he's responded to the critics uh, who said, why didn't you shoot the thing down when you saw it before it got to Alaska? And his answer was that uh, they didn't want to take something down that he says is the size of several buses over a populated area. And that he took the advice of the military. He ordered them to shoot it down when they thought it was safe. And they didn't think it was safe until they got over the Atlantic Ocean. In the meantime, he said that they were able to protect uh, the balloon from gathering information over sensitive sites. But um, officials in the Pentagon have told us that they don't think uh, there was anything the balloon could see or detect from its height that it couldn't get from satellites that are traveling over the United States every day and spying on us. So it's not clear exactly what was going on with this balloon, but the president made it clear that he shot that down and that the other three that they shot down don't seem to be related to China. In fact, their best guess is that they were private research balloons, but they were in areas that they thought might interfere with air traffic, which is why they shot those down. And in the meantime, he says they're punishing I guess they're punishing. They they have restricted some companies from doing business with various Chinese entities that work with the Chinese military. So 
not a whole lot new from this speech, other than it's the first time we've heard from the president extensively on it since this whole thing started a week and a half ago. Well, and with regards to that Chinese balloon, uh, you know, critics say he should have shot it down sooner. But the other argument that we're hearing from the Pentagon, too, is that by following it, by tracking it, by studying it while it was operating, there was a lot that the U.S. could learn from the balloon about China's capabilities. Well, in fact, the president reiterated that, too, in his speech, and it was a, a big portion of it. But he said, make no mistake, if there's something over our airspace that threatens the United States, he's going to order it shot down. So, uh, And he also said he's going to have some conversation with President Xi of China soon. Uh, look, it, it, it doesn't help either side to be in some adversarial position here. Unlike Russia, we do tremendous trade with China. A lot of it comes into the ports uh, where you are every day. Indeed, part and, of Seattle. Yeah, you know, so this is this is something that uh, the United States and China cannot afford to escalate beyond what it is, and I think both sides realize that. Well, the other thing that we wanted to talk to you about, too, is that this week the special jury in that Georgia investigation has said that a number of people that were working on behalf of President Trump and in the effort to overturn the 2020 election may have perjured themselves. This coming from some of the documents that have been released or unsealed by the judge that's overseeing this. What exactly did we learn? Well, just what you said, but we don't know who those people were that may have lied to the grand jury, or at least the grand jury thinks they lied. Uh, we do know some of the people who testified there, including Lindsey Graham, the senator, uh, who was asked today, were you truthful in your testimony? And he gave kind of a mean look to the reporters and said, yeah, and walked away. Uh, we know Mark Meadows, the uh, former chief of staff, uh, was one of the people who testified, Rudy Giuliani. There are a whole bunch of people close to the president. We don't know if any of them are being accused of this. We'll, we'll find out if the prosecutor decides to take those recommendations to yet another grand jury and try to get charges. Uh, but one of the things that was most interesting about this, and this is what President Trump has repeated and falsely repeated for more than two years now, is that there was election fraud in Georgia, and the grand jury unanimously decided, after listening to all kinds of witnesses, including election officials, their unanimous decision was there was no election fraud in Georgia. And this is exactly why the grand jury was convened, because former President Trump made that now famous phone call that was recorded, saying he just needs the election officials to find him 11,000-some-odd votes, and he'll win the election there. And they told him, sorry, Mr. President, we can't do that. That's against the law. So are we expecting the rest of these papers from the grand jury to be released at some point? I don't know that they'll be released publicly. It, they may be, they'll certainly be released to another grand jury if that uh, grand jury is convened by the prosecutor and she decides what to do with this here. But we, for the, for the, for the current time, we're just going to have to wait and see. And then the president also went for his annual physical this past week and He's 80 years old. There's a lot of questions about his health, particularly heading into what could be a run for re-election. What did the doctors have to say? The doctor said he's probably healthier than you, me, and most of the people listening here. <laughs> he said uh, that President Biden is a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old man who's fit for the job as chief executive, head of state, commander-in-chief. Uh, he has had a few health issues this last year, including getting COVID twice. He's being treated for various, what they say are minor heart and reflux issues, uh, and that he lost weight. 
He's down six pounds from last year, down 178 pounds. But you've covered the White House for a long time under a number of different presidents. It's not often that the White House medical staff is going to say anything other than the president is in excellent health because that could have some very serious national security concerns. Right. And we, we, you know, we certainly heard that from former President Trump's attorney, who's now a congressman from Texas, Ronnie Jackson. Um, But his uh, his assessment kind of stretch credulity uh, where, you know, he was saying, you know, he's the healthiest guy I've ever seen. And, and clearly the former president does not look like the healthiest guy you've ever seen. Whereas this particular president does go bounding up steps and he certainly looks thin and fit. So those are, uh, those are two different things. All right. ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks. Still to come. And then there were two or maybe three. Another Republican jumps into the race for president. When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel, another face jumping into the race. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. The former South Carolina governor and ambassador to the U.N. and the Trump administration making the announcement earlier this week. She's the first person to really challenge former President Donald Trump in the race for the 2024 Republican nomination. Joining me now is Philip Bump. He's a correspondent for The Washington Post who covers a lot of politics. And uh, I guess uh, what's been the initial reaction from Trump world? Because a lot of people are are looking to him while other members of the Republican Party want a new face. Well, from from Trump world, uh, the immediate vicinity of Trump, the first reaction when Haley first announced was to release a list of attacks on Nikki Haley. The the day uh, that she actually made her formal announcement, formal speech, she had a sort of more of a merrier vibe to it. Uh, But your broader point about Trump world in terms of Republican voters who have supported Donald Trump in 2016-2020, that remains to be seen. There there are certainly no indications at this point in time that Nikki Haley is starting to gobble up a whole lot of support from Trump's base, uh, nor is it the case that she's gobbling up a whole lot of support from Ron DeSantis, who isn't yet declared, but uh, the Florida governor seems to be pretty likely to uh, be about to jump into the race. Uh, so it's not really clear that her announcements had much of an effect, but of course, polls are, you know, the way it's it's hard to poll on something that's just happened. So, so we'll see. Indeed. And it's also very, very early in the election cycle, but we Absolutely. did see that Quinnipiac poll that shows Nikki Haley only having 5% while Trump and DeSantis really kind of running away with it so far. Yeah, I mean, the the question broadly for Republicans, particularly Republicans who are thinking about getting into the race, is can they actually, A, make a dent in the support of either Trump or DeSantis, and B, if they do so, are they simply pulling support away from DeSantis and therefore facilitating Donald Trump, uh, his victory? In 2016, Donald Trump was able to win because he had a plurality of support. Uh, he only started winning a majority of the support in primaries after most of the other candidates were out. Uh, and there are a lot of Republicans who are very worried that if a number of Republicans get in and they start eating into DeSantis' support, DeSantis now has a, a, a large lead as the anti-Trump candidate, uh, then they could be clearing the path for Donald Trump in 2024 once again. But we're seeing a lot of potential candidates. Obviously, DeSantis still just a potential candidate. Uh, we've also got Mike Pence, and now we're hearing possibly Mike Bolton all jumping into the race. Uh, There's a lot of people that want to not only take on Donald Trump, but really want to take on Joe Biden. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the the, the sentiment here is that if someone, if Joe Biden faces off against uh, Donald Trump, that 
people think that Joe Biden has a decent chance. If Joe Biden is facing off against someone else, uh, the odds seem to be, at least according to the conventional wisdom, that Joe Biden will have a tougher time of it. And so there are a lot of Republicans who think if they can just get past Trump, you know, if this can be their year, if they can edge out DeSantis and win the primaries and get to Biden, they can become president. Uh, the challenge, of course, is <laughs> getting through that primary. And it's not really clear right now what that path might be unless you happen to be Ron DeSantis. And, and you look back at Nikki Haley, obviously the first person to really announce her candidacy for the presidency of the United States of America. But she is uh, someone who was part of Trump world. But unlike most people in Trump's circle, she left on good terms. She did. You know, I mean, these things are never long lasting in Trump world either. Right. It, you know, it's very much what he done for me lately sort of vibe with the former president. Uh, she uh, came out and spoke out against him after the Capitol riot, uh, after she had left the administration. She then came back around and suggested that, you know, he could have prevented the war in Ukraine. Uh, you know, Nikki Haley has always tried to figure out what the line might be where she can appeal to both uh, Trump, hardcore Trump supporters and more moderate Republicans. She's sort of hoping, I think, that she can continue to walk that line and, you know, thereby create a path to the nomination. Uh, so far, though, according to polling, at least, it doesn't seem as though that's having much success. A candidate's record is always very important. What kind of record does she have as governor in South Carolina? Well, she was she was well regarded in South Carolina, and she actually sort of emerged as a national figure in the wake of the mass shooting in Charleston that happened you know, almost a decade ago now, uh, at which point the the uh, there had been a Confederate flag flying outside of the South Carolina state capitol for decades. Uh, and she led the charge to have it removed uh, and sort of made a name for herself on, on, on you know, the, the overlap of race and gun violence that that represented. She, she was able to stand out. Uh, but, you know, I, I think she has been damaged by her time since, in, in part because she first was a very harsh critic of Donald Trump's uh, in 2016. Then she went to work for his administration, which a lot of people saw as sort of selling out her values. I mean, she was very, very, very outspoken about him uh, during the primary in 2016. Uh, now she's coming back around and, you know, she said she wouldn't run against him. Now she is running against him. You know, there, are all these, there are all these opportunities for people who are skeptical of her to elevate that skepticism, which obviously doesn't do her a lot of good. Well, you mentioned her efforts to remove that Confederate flag from the state capitol. Certainly, the Republicans in the most recent cycles have been playing identity politics, much like Democrats have. Is that going to hurt her that she sort of sided with that, uh, for want of a better term, the the wokeness of removing those Confederate icons? I don't know. I, I think it's that sort of supposes that she has a status from which she can get hurt, right? I mean, she's just, she's pulling so low right now that, you know, either that's already baked in or, you know, as that becomes a more salient issue, should she suddenly become a focus of attention? Uh, I'm not, she doesn't have very far down to go. You know, I look, I look, it's, it certainly is the case that there is a strain on the right that, that it is bad to remove Confederate memorials. This obviously is not a memorial. This is just a flag, which obviously represents the Confederate States of America. Uh, so I, I don't know if this sort of falls into that category, but either way, you know, she can't take too much damage because there's not much damage to be taken. Looking more broadly, are there any other candidates that we haven't talked about that are sort of mulling a potential run? Yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are countless, as you said. There's Tim Scott, also South Carolina, and the senator. There's Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. You'd mentioned uh, John Bolton, who was a former national security advisor. It's Mike Pompeo is a former secretary of state who worked under uh, Trump. One of the things that's sort of fascinating is we have all these people who used to work for Trump who are now facing off against him potentially, uh, in part, of course, because Donald Trump decided he's going to run again, which normally ousted presidents don't do, at least in recent history. 
so yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of names that could be in the mix. But right now, this very much is a race between three candidates, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and other. And you know, there's a lot of people jockeying to be that other, but the more people there are filling that other space, the less likely it is that one of them is going to uh, prevail, I think. Uh, so, you know, it, it, DeSantis is the real question mark. Can he can he hold up? Can he continue to have high favorability even as Donald Trump starts attacking more? It, you know, if the answer to that is yes, then I, I think he's probably best position of anyone. And then, of course, we're all presuming that President Biden's going to run for re-election. He hasn't made any official announcement, but seems to be hinting that he will. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he there had been some discussion in the past about whether or not he would seek a second term, even before he ran, that, you know, he had made these noises about being this bridge to a new generation. Maybe he wouldn't be there that long. But yeah, you're right. It seems very likely that he will. And obviously, there is an advantage to incumbency that the Democrats would prefer to retain. Uh, I think one of the reasons you're not really seeing a lot of outspoken challenges to, to Biden, again, it's very early, but one of the reasons you're not is because I think a lot of Democrats are sort of freaked out. And they don't necessarily want to run against him and potentially damage him prior to a general election against someone like Donald Trump or DeSantis, both of whom are obviously not the of Democrats, uh, but particularly Trump. You know, they don't want to have a primary challenge to Biden that makes him weaker uh, than have him go up against Trump in November and have Trump therefore be able to win. So I think that he is he is aided both by the power of incumbency and by reticence by Democrats to, to, to rock the boat. All right, Philip Bump, correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Coming up next, Fox sacrifices its journalistic integrity for fear of losing viewers. And the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Kim Shepard. Some scathing revelations are coming out on the defamation lawsuit brought by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News. ABC's M. Nguyen's on the Northwest Newsline. And defamation lawsuits are historically really difficult to prove. But in this case, it sounds like they might have some pretty pointed evidence. Yeah, certainly defamation cases are generally hard to win. But there are hundreds of pages in these court documents that lay out evidence to show that Fox stars were preaching conspiracy theories, you know, in favor of the former president, trying to also boost ratings without much fact checking, despite what, of course, Dominion Voting System says could harm their company. So this new court filing is really bombshell because it reveals the inner workings at Fox News. It's about 200 pages long. It's a part of this $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. And it just has dozens of examples cited in the documents. It just lists one after the other examples of both Fox News anchors and producers privately acknowledging that the former president and his allies and the allegations of the election fraud were just false, despite their network promoting those claims on their shows. Do we have any specific correlations between the text messages and other behind the scenes communications and what these hosts were saying on the air? On the air, we've heard time and time again around the time of November that the Dominion voting systems were rigged to possibly change votes in favor of Joe Biden, change them from Trump to Biden. And we heard that time and time again on the network. But, you know, we especially heard that from someone named Sidney Powell. If you remember, she's one of Trump's attorneys who were on the show continuously, very often pushing election denialism. We've heard from Tucker Carlson, at least in this document, saying 
and texting to producers that he felt she was lying. He also went on to say there, quote, wasn't enough fraud to change the outcome of the election. He even went on January 6th later on to say that Trump was a, quote, destroyer. We also heard from Laura Ingram in this document, apparently telling Hannity and Carlson that Sidney Powell, again, that attorney, was a bit, quote, nuts. Time and time again, there's just Fox News anchors and stars and even producers behind the scenes just continuously saying that these allegations were nonsense. So what would happen when those folks would would say we should fact check this? I mean, were they ignored or were they reprimanded? So we've heard of some examples in this document that some people who would speak out if they weren't, you know, large stars, they would immediately have to take down the tweet. They would immediately, you know, stay quiet about what they were saying, whether or not they were fact checking. There were some producers who continuously had to fact check. And yet they were called out by some anchors as well. So there was a climate in Fox News at this time, it appears in these documents that showed that those who wanted to speak out just weren't listened to. Has Fox responded to this yet? Yeah, certainly. So we've heard from Fox a few times. They've said, one, they're proud of the 2020 election coverage. They called the lawsuit baseless. And they said that the core of this lawsuit remains centered around the idea of constitutional rights, of freedom of the press, freedom of speech. They've also said in another claim that uh, they were questioning the damage amount of $1.6 billion, saying that they believe Dominion's value as a business can't be anywhere near $1.6 billion. So this continues the conversation from Fox News. And ultimately, this could be one of the most consequential First Amendment cases moving forward. We do know there's a trial set in April. And as you mentioned, Kim, it's going to be difficult when it comes to defamation cases. But this one is a little bit more unique. It has so many pieces of evidence and so much testimony to go through that it might be pretty difficult for Fox News to get away. ABC's M. Nguyen on the Northwest Newsline. And that's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.